Lands of M, 104.4. The first radio. It was a box with a cat's whiskers. Well, it's a little glass tube on top of the box. And to get the station, you had to twiddle a wire on this end here against a crystal in there. And that would change the station. But there was always a fight. Because everybody wanted, there was only one set of earphones. Hi, this is Brent Barber, the founding director of the Bicycle Film Festival. And this is Resonance FM. Ride on until the break of dawn, because you don't stop. Uh-uh. This is The Bike Show on Resonance FM. My name's Jack Thurston. Now, I have a question for you. What's the longest distance you've ever ridden your bicycle? For me, I think it's about 200 kilometres or about 125 miles. It felt a long way and by the end of the day I was definitely ready to get off the bike. I'm bracing myself now because this week on the show we're going to be talking about riding a lot lot further than that. In the next half hour, we're going to try and understand the allure of long-distance cycling, as well as helping people like me get to grips with the idea of riding for many hundreds of kilometres without stopping. Fortunately, joining me for the ride is regular bike show contributor and seasoned long-distance cyclist Kieran Yates. Kieran, so let's get this out of the way first. How far have you ridden in a single bike ride? For me, that would be Paris-Brest-Paris, which I've completed two times now. Um, that's twelve, just over 1,200 kilometres in three and a half days. So That's, that's extraordinary. I bow at your uh, <laughs> cycling greatness. But the saying goes that even the greatest journey begins with a single step or a single turn of the wheel. And for every long-distance cyclist like you, there was a time when they weren't a long-distance cyclist. Yes, that's true. Um, I think for me, um, I became aware of long-distance cycling around about the early 1990s. Uh, I'd got back into cycling after being at university, done a few bits of touring around on my own. I'd never been a member of a club, and I couldn't really see myself as a racing cyclist. But I was was still looking for a challenge out there. Um, And I'd heard mention of Paris Brest Paris and I suddenly came across Audax and it was something that had a great deal of appeal to me. And you reckon that 100 miles is the sort of start of long distance cycling? That's where long distance cycling starts. Why 100 miles? It's a nice round number to start off with, uh, which is the obvious reason. And um, it's also something that can be achieved by most people in a day. And it comes with a sense of achievement at the end of it. Very definitely, yes. Even now, when you look at um, uh, sportives and Cycling Weekly, many of them will call themselves epic, but they seldom touch 100 miles, uh, usually um, somewhat less than that. I think it's the nice round figure that um, appeals to most people. And it certainly sticks in most people's minds when they have either 
purposefully or inadvertently cycled over 100 miles. Earlier this year, I went along to the start of London, Edinburgh, London, which is Britain's longest long-distance cycling event organised by Audax UK. And I spoke to a number of the riders there and asked them if they could recall the first time they rode 100 miles. Golly, I'm an old lady, so it's probably been a really long time since my first 100-mile ride. I do remember, however, the first time I rode 17 miles, and that sounds kind of odd, but I was about 22 years old, and I remember riding around a lake and thinking that I was an absolute rock star for riding 17 miles. And I actually still think that about milestones. I think that no matter what a person's milestone is, they are a rock star at that moment. Sometimes people think about the distances that we ride, and they think, oh, I could never do that. And I try to tell people that anybody could do this. You work up to it. It's not something that happens overnight. And every new milestone is something to be celebrated. So I guess we're going to celebrate a new milestone on this ride because I've done a 1,200, but this will be my first 14. As a first time, this was in, in Norway. I was riding from France to Nordcap. Yes, Elune was a 50-kilogram bicycle. Um, one time, the weather was so bad, it was heavy wind, and I couldn't um, uh, put my tent uh, too much wind, so I have to ride, to ride, to ride 226 kilometers in mountain with heavy uh, wind against me. It was terrible, but perhaps my best souvenir. <laughs> There's a famous ride in the northwest called Seattle to Portland, and many people, it's kind of a, a, a benchmark ride for them if they get involved with distance riding. We often call it a gateway for randonneuring, and um, we did that ride in two days. Uh, it's a 200-mile ride, but most people break the ride into two 100-mile days. And on the first day, we ended up riding 120 miles, and that was kind of where my brain clicked, thinking, hmm, you know, 100 miles is really not that hard, and I actually feel pretty good at 120, which was our stopping point. And that kind of just sort of opened the door for the possibility of these longer distances. 100 miles is a big challenge, but it's something that you can kind of imagine. Even if you're riding at a fairly slow speed, say 10 miles an hour, You could do it in a day, um, even if it had plenty of breaks for food and rest. And there are a lot of rides, as you mentioned, out there of that kind of distance. But to go further than that, to start riding 300, 400, 600 kilometre rides, that's a different level of commitment, isn't it? Yes and no. Uh, There's a number of factors that can stop someone going on longer rides. Work commitments, family commitments that prevent you spending big blocks of time out on the bike. When I was at uh, London, Edinburgh, London, I spoke to Daniel Webb, who's the organiser, and he takes the view that the barriers are much more psychological than physiological. I think there are two things, really, that that are barriers. I think, first of all, there's a perception that it's actually a lot harder than it is. And I think it's very much cycling's dirty little secret, is that actually it's a lot easier than it looks. Um, And a lot of people realise this when they get onto a bike and they realise that actually cycling 30 miles is actually rather easier than walking 30 miles um, so I think that's that's one thing to overcome uh, I think as well a, a lot of it's down to image as well um, the when people start cycling and they want to do something that's a challenge uh, they open the papers or the magazines and they see sportive sportive sportives and it's all about going faster and faster and faster um, but I don't think really at the moment there's much out there saying, well, there's a 
different way to have an adventure and that's to go further longer um, which is I think really as you get older as well and you can't go faster going longer is, is, is where the adventures are, are so I think I think really that's what Audax UK needs to do it needs to sell itself as a as, as an adventure a lot more um, and, and, and appeal to those riders who are perhaps on sportives who are perhaps maybe not either suited to sportives or would really just rather do something a bit different but they don't know about us just to take the initial point made by Daniel there that going further is down to perception and psychology I think that's true I think the British gets very hung up with empiricism measuring ranking and rating everything if we get into a much more continental frame of mind and see that targeting a specific distance is an ideal, we can forget about what others are doing. Riding non-competitive Audax-type events, for example, becomes similar to the challenge faced by a first-time marathon runner. This was a point made to me by another Audax UK organiser, Paul Stewart. In exactly the same way that a, uh, a new marathon runner would, might be perfectly happy with taking five hours or more to do their, their London Marathon, you can take 40 hours. You have the whole weekend to do this 600 kilometres. Now, the fast guys will get round in, um, in 30 hours, something much f- in much faster times, but it doesn't matter because, essentially, you're all in it together, you're all taking part in the same event, and the guys who finish last share equally in the glory, as it were, as the, the guys who finish first. And in fact, in many ways, the guys who finish last have more glory because Audax is about, um, the word comes from audacious riding, setting yourself challenges and going out and doing them. And to a certain extent, the guys who finish last are the, are the guys who have had the harder ride. They're the people who have had to dig deep a little bit more to actually push on and complete the ride and see it through. And so it is a sport a form of cycling for everybody. One of the things that we find from people that do get interested in Audax is that it is, in fact, just that, a psychological barrier. That, so that once you've ridden a 200, you can then quickly discover that if you want to, you can ride a 300, and then you ride a 400, and then you ride a 600. And from a personal perspective, I find that incredibly empowering. Because in order to do what sounds like a hugely uh, a huge athletic sporting performance achievement it is in fact all the well within the you know the abilities of of every man it's something you build up towards obviously but it's uh, riding say a 600 kilometer event is no more unachievable than running a marathon and how many people run the london marathon every year many of whom have never done it before well, he's right that a lot of people run the London Marathon, but there's a couple of points. I mean, the London Marathon, even if you walk it, it's only going to take you, I don't know, eight hours or something like that. And also, I don't think there are many people who run a London Marathon without having done any training or preparation. And I just can't get my head around the idea of keeping going for 600 kilometres, knowing what it's like to do 200. How, how do you get to that sort of physical level where you can do that where you could just keep going because i think i would just i would just stop i think um what comes into play is uh, building up from the shorter distances and doing it in sequence is usually the best way of doing it so 
initially aim for that 200 kilometres, maybe do a few 200 kilometre rides, then move up to 300 kilometres. By that point, you're probably going to be experiencing riding through the night for the first time or a good proportion of darkness. But certainly for 400 kilometres, you will be riding in the night time, uh, which requires different kind of skills you you've got to anticipate that you're going to be going slow you've got to anticipate that there will be points when you're getting tired you can either choose to fight through that tiredness and continue or you can stop for a short while what is often effective is just to take a 15 20 minute break a little snooze and you can continue and when it comes up to 600 kilometers then it's a good idea to stop and take a few hours rest but just to go back to that main point that you talked about about preparation and training i think that's very true just because you're fit and healthy particularly when it comes to the very long distances it doesn't make success guaranteed Uh, I think other factors come into play, such as how well you manage your time and how prepared you are. It's what Daniel Webb refers to as conditioning. By conditioning, I mean your joints, your muscles, your bones, and just being used to being active for 15, 18, 24, 36 hours. Um, I think a lot of people coming to to Ordax, and they're they're usually younger and fitter, and think, well, I'm young, I'm fit, I can do this, and then and then suffer really badly, you know, because they're not paying attention to seeing some of the older riders who are a lot more experienced and a lot more conditioned, uh, who seem to have a much easier time of it. They know how to pace themselves and they're used to that sort of distance. I think the only thing you can really do to, to build up that conditioning is to do more riding. So, And I think a lot of our most successful riders ride right through the winter. Um, I think, as they say, winter miles make summer smiles. <laughs> and, and I think that nothing's truer than that, as, as with order. It's quite interesting what he says about just going and doing it and uh, doing it again. I found that when I did my longest ride, I guess probably a bit more than 200 kilometres, I definitely went through sort of phases of feeling really rotten and riding feeling rotten and then thinking, is this just going to be a downward spiral? Because there's, there's a weird thing when when you sort of ride a, a, about 70 kilometres ride or something like that, generally it's a sort of downward trajectory. You start off feeling strong or warm up and then feel strong. And then basically by the end, you know, you know the end's in tight 70 kilometres, 50 miles, something. By the end, you know, you're kind of a bit worn out because I guess you've paced yourself for that distance. But with riding a longer distance, I still went through that phase of feeling at 70 kilometres, oh, I feel knackered now. And then I had another... 50 or 60 kilometers of feeling quite bad just riding along just thinking god what's going on but then this weird thing happened at about 140 150 kilometers for the last bit i felt really good had i reached a sort of steady state or something like that is that is that a common experience i i I think uh, it is quite a common experience i think certainly when i've done rides in the past i've been very tempted to think i'm going to try and complete this as fast as i can head out with the fastest riders trying to stay up and keep pace with them and that usually does result in that thing of feeling quite exhausted after 60 or 70 kilometers that's Um, exactly what i did that's exactly (laughs) what i did you got me down i was like oh yeah i'll keep up with these guys and i just couldn't Uh, and yeah i think there are some very very fit guys who do these long distances and you might think oh they're only going 20 or 25 26 kilometers an hour but after you've been doing that for a few hours it really does hurt and they will carry on at that pace for the next five or six hours or whatever it takes 
so that that's one thing. Being, it's what Daniel said, pacing yourself and being aware of what your limitations are. And I think if you go at a more steady pace initially, then you might not suffer in that way. But certainly over the longer distances, I think you do get that cyclical thing of feeling a bit rotten and uh, you can... Once you've done it a few times, you know that it's not, it's only a temporary state. And so when you're doing the winter miles that he talks about in terms of um, conditioning and that kind of thing, is that very low intensity riding? Do you have to almost hold yourself back? Because you do hear about that from people who do bike racing, that they do their, what they call it, base miles, where they're in like um, a relaxed state with a low heart rate and they're just plodding along. And you don't feel that this is training, but apparently it is training because you need to do that for, is it, was it getting your cardiovascular yeah. system? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Um, more than anything, it is just getting out there and doing a decent amount of mileage every week. I think over the last couple of years, I, I haven't been riding as much as I used to. And uh, it shows in my physique and in my form. I entered a 600 kilometre ride earlier this year. It's something I've done quite a few times before. And after about 420 kilometres, I just couldn't go any further. I, I had to pack up and uh, catch what, a train what, home. What hurt? Um, it Apart wasn't from so everything. It wasn't so much hurt. It was more I'd had a mechanical problem and then I got a bit lost in on a certain part of the route. So it was already close to the time limit. And in my head, it, was just, it just came to a point where I thought, I don't want to finish this ride at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. I'm just going to go home. I might have made it. I don't know. But I wasn't in the right frame of mind. And I think that psychological part of riding also comes from the physiological where you've put in the distances beforehand they all feed into one another and gives you it gives you the confidence to believe that you can succeed at these longer distances so say someone wants to ride 200 kilometers for the first time one way they might go about doing it is to get on the internet and plot a route of that distance using one of the many free route planning sites that there are out there that you just draw a route on the map and it tells you uh, what distance you've got and then they just go out and ride that 200 kilometres. Yeah, you could do it that way, uh, ride it on your own. But I think there's a lot to be said for riding with a group on an organised event and that's what Audax UK does. And I asked Daniel Webb, what are the benefits of riding with Audax UK? First and foremost... Um, the one thing that we have an incredible wealth of in Audax UK is knowledge of, of, of the roads in the UK. There are an awful lot of people who organise small events, and in doing that, we've built up a tremendous wealth of knowledge. Our routes are usually very, very good, very knowledgeable and very interesting. You could spend an awful lot of time devising your own routes, your own, but by riding our events, you tap into that. That, that knowledge and that scenery. I think certainly an event like London, Edinburgh, London, for example, it wouldn't have been possible without the dozens or so people who are our members chipping in with ideas and suggestions to just refine it and make it all that bit better, really. And then also, I think what we offer is a, is a, is a civilised and, and friendly environment to go cycling in. We compete. We compete against ourselves rather than each other. And we, you know, we test ourselves and what we can do. But by not 
having times and, and medals and things like that. We're a lot more sociable and we help each other as, as well as helping ourselves. Um, a lot of us know each other through, through different rides. And when you're up against adversity, if you're riding through the night or you're riding in bad weather, the, the Dunkirk spirit sets in and people bond together. And, and you can't get that on a ride on your own, however much you might want to post it on Facebook afterwards. Nothing beats having somebody there with you. I've ridden a few Audaxes and I can vouch for the fact that it's a lot easier to do a long distance than riding on your own. For a start, there's the route sheet. That is helpful. I mean, that's not like having the arrows there on a sportive that pointing you left and right. You still have to read it and, and figure out where you are. But the navigation does become a bit easy. You don't have to be having great maps out all over the place. And then there's the food stops along the way. Sometimes they provide you with sometimes it's a commercial place but you know you do know where the food stop's going to be and what distance that is away from where you are so if you're if you're having one of those bad patches you can think okay all I've got to do is get through the next 20 or 30 kilometers and then I can stop I can have a cup of tea put my feet up chat to somebody you know so have a little bit of a change of atmosphere and then you know often when you get back on the bike it you feel much better but I think what Daniel said about the camaraderie is is really the main thing and with Audax, you definitely get the sense that people aren't racing against you. And I guess for people who haven't heard of Audax, they might be surprised about the number of events that there are. There are Audax events taking place all around the country, all year round. And um, for people living in London, there are many that take place in the home counties. Um, one of the best goes from London to Brighton and back again. And that's organised by Paul Stewart, who we heard from earlier. My main project over the last couple of years has been the, the London Ditchling Devil, which is a 200k ride from, from London down to Brighton and back again. Um, this is a, a route that I used to do as, my, as a regular training loop, riding loop for myself. It's because I live in London, it was a, and it's an obvious sort of ride to, to do. And so we look to basically get it into the, the Audax calendar. It's a, a bit further than most people would, would tend to ride. There are lots of events that go to Brighton. We thought, OK, let's see if we can, we can bring it back. And so now, three years on, we now have a, uh, an event which last year had about 150 riders, um, of which about 100 were completely new to Audax. And of those, in fact, the majority of them were uh, facing their first ride of over, over 100 miles. So it's actually really successful for bringing new riders into riding longer distance events. Now, we set up the event. One of the, one of the big problems we have, though, in, with Audax UK is actually how to market them because we're not a professional body. We don't have um, lots of uh, marketing support that you might have with, uh, associated with commercial events. So... What I did is I went down the, down the line of putting together some uh, promotional materials, various flyers, put together a small website. Um, and that worked well, but we're still not seeing the, the types of numbers that we were looking at. Now, as it happens, I live quite near Richmond Park, which is the, the start and finish point of the event. So I took a, uh, a line straight out of The Apprentice and I thought, OK, we've got an event coming up. We have to do something. How are we going to make it happen? And the way we made it happen is actually going up to the park and talking to people, telling people about, about the event, handing out some flyers, and it worked. So we went from 
60 people on the road last year to 150 people on the road this year. Still small numbers, but my hope is that next year we might be looking at having two or 300 on the road. The end, the end objective is to have this event become a significant local London event for, for cyclists. Non-commercial, supported by cycling clubs and local groups. Uh, the inspiration, if you like, and the model to a certain extent is the, the Dunwich Dynamo. I mean, that's a completely spontaneous community event, as it were. And I think this year there are between 1,500 and 2,000, 2000 cyclists on that event. Now, the character of that event is very different to our, our Ordax in the sense that the Dunwich Dynamo is a real um, event for every man, as it were, so that we have there's, there's, there's all, all types of cyclists on that event, from people who are racing cyclists down to people riding shoppers, having a, a once-in-a-lifetime adventure, as it were, out to, out to, uh, out to Dunwich. Our event is much more of a, a, a structured in the sense that it's a regular, uh, a regular Ordax, but we still have a wide range of, of cyclists on the event, from racing club and racing cyclists to recreational cyclists who are attempting longer distances for the first time. I did that first, or I think it, maybe it was the second Ditchling Devil, the one with about 60 people, and it was amazing, a really hot day, as I remember, and a, a really good ride. That event, like the others we've talked about, are 200-kilometre rides, rides for a single day, or if you're something like the Dunwich Dynamo, a, a single night. But these rides where I'm stuck at, you know, <laughs> the plateau that I need to get onto are all-day and all-night rides. So we're talking about 300-kilometres or 400-kilometre rides. You mentioned that you need to sleep on those. But how does that work? I mean, where do you sleep? It depends on the kind of event that it is. Some are more organised than others and the very basic kind of events you might just put a bivy bag in your saddle bag and find a uh, spot at the side of the road maybe a bus shelter maybe the entrance to a church and uh, curl up there for a few hours in the middle of the night and get a couple of hours sleep then for more organised events particularly in the years when people are getting ready to enter Paris, Brest, Paris, then you'll find that organisers will hire church halls and the like and there'll be uh, mattresses there available for people to sleep on. So you'd be able to get a bit more comfortable sleep because the bus shelter vision, I mean, although it definitely qualifies for a certain kind of epic tag, I don't think that appeals to... Um to everyone does it really no. or maybe maybe actually once you're once you're there you don't really mind and the bus shelter feels like the waldorf astoria <laughs> it's certainly true that when you get to a certain point on a ride you aren't that concerned about where you sleep you're just happy to get a bit of sleep and you're happy to wake up in a couple of hours time feeling a little bit more refreshed but yeah i, I think it's important that there are a variety of events and certainly it's been the case with london edinburgh london which we talked about earlier. And when I spoke to Daniel Webb, one of the organisers of London, Edinburgh, London, he told me about how the event has evolved over time. It's been running for about 30 years now. Uh, originally, it was uh, an organiser who decided on a, a, an event that started in Doncaster and would then go up to Edinburgh, down to London, and back up to Doncaster. Uh, and the first time it was organised, only about 30 people rode it. It runs every four years. It's got slowly larger and larger. We then introduced a uh, start down in London, and then we 
2009, four years ago, we got rid of the Doncaster start, and now we have this event, London, Edinburgh, London. London, Edinburgh, London. You don't go straight up the A1. What's the actual route? Uh, well, it takes the... Uh, you're right, by the way. We don't go up the A1. Um, uh, we, we take a, a route that sort of goes, skirts through the fens um, around the east of England and, and the Lincolnshire world. Uh, uh, and up through Lincolnshire uh, before we hit, I think what's one of the highlights of the route which is uh, a crossing of the Humber Bridge uh, a lot of the riders will be doing that uh, at night as well so which will be quite spectacular uh, both for them and for us watching we then cross over the, the country uh, through through uh, crossing the Pennines uh, over the famous climate Yad Moss before heading out through the lowlands of Scotland up to Edinburgh. Uh, we take a long loop through Scotland. It's so beautiful, the countryside there, that we get to see twice as much this time uh, before heading back along roughly the same route back down to London. And the total distance? 1,419 kilometres. I can see that a lot of hard work has gone into preparing for the event. Can you just describe to me the process of how this event has come into being this year? I mean, it all started really about four years ago um, when we were, we, were, we were started to sort of talk about what sort of event we wanted to run. It was actually a spreadsheet of numbers that, that I'm afraid, it's a very dull answer, but um, that's, that, that's what prompted us to, to, to organise this differently. Uh, I think in the past we focused very much on self-sufficiency um, and that's been very much our ethos. Um, but we looked at the data from the previous event in 2009 and we looked at what, when people stopped and slept. And it was quite clear to us that for all the heroics about riding through the night, that most people actually, when it got to about midnight, unsurprisingly, like to go to bed. Um, so we had to think about how we would cater for you know, a, a sort of an event that would appeal to more people, that more people could ride. Um, and we decided to put spend more, invest more in, in, in more facilities, so more beds, more blankets, more showers, um, so it would encourage people who were perhaps not so confident about being out on the road for five days to take part in an event like this. Um, so, um, but this was quite a, a, a sort of sea change for our members who were used to events that were very bare bones and, 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 and much cheaper. Um, so we took we took a bit of a gamble, really, and you know we put the ticket price up quite a bit to pay for all these facilities, um, and we were never sure until we opened entries whether it would work or not. Um, and we opened entries in January, and we were just deluged, deluged, and we sold out in hours, um, which was very pleasing, really. After all that work, and you're never quite sure how people are going to respond, and then they all. You know, they all they all spend their money on your event, and they all turn up, and they're all excited by it, and it's it's really satisfying thinking, yeah, it was right, it was the right strategy. I think probably 15 years ago, 1,200 kilometre rides were probably limited to Paris, Brest, Paris, and Boston, Montreal, Boston. I can't think if there were many others. No, I can't. What's available out there now? If I become a super randonneur and want to go and see some other countries. There are rides all around the world these days. Um, pretty much everywhere where you see cycling, you'll see an event like this. Um, you, can, you can ride 1,200-kilometre events in, in South Korea, uh, Australia. There are many, many of them in America. Um, the week after this, there's a similar ride in Spain that goes from uh, Madrid to Gijon and back. Um, 
there are other rides in France as well, Bavaria. Uh, I think there, 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 there are. I think I, I'm sure I heard about one in Mongolia as well that's happening shortly. Uh, so really, I mean, it's up to you. You know, I think there's a ride for everyone out there. If you like to ride long distances, if you like flat terrain, hilly terrain, hot weather, cold weather, um, there, there'll be something there for you. Well, it's good to know that there's no shortage of 1,200 kilometer events, Kieran. Just don't sign me up for any just yet. I know it does seem impossible, but uh, as I said earlier, it's it's going a step at a time and uh, building up to those longer events. So for you, that's a 300-kilometre ride, and then maybe... Can I do that in a day, if I do an early start? Is that, is that how the 300-kilometre ones tend to work? It, it really depends on how hilly they are. Um, the flatter ones, many people will get around in... 13, 14 hours. Um, the hillier ones, particularly in Wales. I know all about that. <laughs> I know all about that. I did a 160 kilometre Audax in mid Wales, and that had something like 3,000 metres of climbing. Maybe more actually. It was absolutely exhausting. I don't, I, and I couldn't have done double that at all. Well, the, the classic 300 in Wales is the LNF. I think it's got a slightly different name now. And that, that's got 5,000 metres of climbing, I think. Okay, and but so it, I won't do it, that one. It, takes, it took me 17 hours a, a few years ago when I was actually reasonably fit. So. so aim for a fairly flat 300. I think that would be a wise move, yes. So 300 kilometres riding around Wales, you know, that's going to be scenic. That is definitely going to be scenic. But do you feel that doing it all in one go you kind of stop paying attention to the beauty of your surroundings you're thinking a little bit more about survival and 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 you know getting to the next food stop and are you going to make it and and you get tired do you feel that you can still really enjoy the countryside while you're doing these really long distance rides i think you can yes i think sometimes it seems a uh a little bit subliminal that you're taking it all in but it definitely does go in and i i can certainly remember rides that i did 10 years ago even and parts of them you can't remember the entirety but certainly bits do stick in there um and sometimes i I like to think of it as um the difference between a short story and a novel in a short story everything's concentrated in there it's got all the same ingredients but it's it's the constraints of the form that uh give you the narrative and do you think people who do long distance cycling it's a little bit like taking a hallucinogenic drug there's a sort of change in your mental state that takes place that you i don't know whether it's endorphins or tiredness sleep deprivation but i've definitely heard people talking about on paris best paris that they would see things that weren't there and, and uh, interviewing eileen sheridan about her extraordinary end-to-end she was definitely hallucinating by the end of that do you think that people are maybe drawn to the fact that they have a slightly uh, changed mental state these are sort of uh, hallucinogenic bike rides <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the main draw it's certainly... <laughs> not the main draw but part of the appeal um i'm not sure even that it's part of the appeal i think it's part of the um overall experience i don't know whether people actually <laughs> <That's very diplomatic. laughs> purposefully go out of the way to experience these things I've, I've not really had any extreme hallucinations myself but i think what it comes down to more than anything when on these long rides is fatigue and your perceptions do get distorted when you're fatigued the only slightly negative experience I had when riding Paris Brest Paris was the feeling that the 
white lines in the middle of the road were lifting off the tarmac and floating in midair. And you just suddenly think, why is that happening? And then you just realise it's because I'm very, very tired. And I stopped and had a rest and got back on the bike and it had all stopped. So. Do you get a sense of having been to places without having been there? Because, you know, you don't really stop. You know, you might see an interesting church that you would stop at um, or, a, or a lake where you might have a swim if you were touring. And, you know, on Nordex, you're probably not going to do that, are you? You're just going to keep on going. Do you get this sort of sense of um, just a whole sensory overload of places that, that, that then sort of replays in your in your mind Afterwards, I think that's kind kind of true. Actually, you, you you get a broader experience of a place. It's not the concentrated, single itemized, but you get a a feeling of a locale rather than a location. Thanks for uh, treating us to a, a look at the um, the fascinating and uh, sometimes alluring world of long distance cycling. I will definitely um, celebrate my first. 300 kilometres, because that's that's my next <laughs> milestone. Well, I wish you every luck with it, and uh, let me know how you get on. And if you set a milestone for a long-distance bicycle ride and uh, achieve it, let us know. Uh, send in uh, an email to bikeshow at resonancefm.com, and um, if we get a handful of those, um, we'll, we'll, we'll read them out, won't we? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. All right. Until next week, thanks for listening. From me, Jack Thurston. And from me, Kieran Yates. Goodbye. Goodbye. Destiny